Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would help uh, me and everyone in here, that you would help me to preach it in the way that you want, and that we would hear it in the way that you want us to hear it, and that it would be good for us, that it would be you teaching your truth to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, this morning we are continuing our series for Christians who doubt. Part two is today, so we began this series uh, last week with part one, where we talked about the fact that sometimes we, those of us who are Christians, we end up with unanswered questions, and the unanswered questions tempt us to walk away sometimes. That we may have a time in our life where God or Jesus or the Bible, they say something that is um, confusing or offensive to us, and we start to think, well, maybe I'll just walk away from this whole thing. And last week we talked about asking ourselves the question, who will you go to? You remember that? Okay, good. Uh, a couple of you remembered it. <laughs> Not gonna, no, I don't want to judge you, but, I'm, but, but first service, they, they remembered it, like all of them did. Um, <laughs> So that, that's fine. You, you, everyone's at their own place. Okay, so anyway, um, so we talked about the fact that sometimes we have these unanswered questions and they tempt us to walk away from God. This morning, what I'd like to do is kind of talk about that a little bit more, but from a slightly different angle. Um, I want to I ask, I want to talk about what do we do when the world that we live in seems bad and yet we're told God is good. Right? What do we do when we look at the world and we go, what is in front of my eyes seems awful, and yet I'm told there's a good God over it all. And so I want to start with um, a verse from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to read to you Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse uh, 14. And this is a verse that I think most people don't even know it's in the Bible. It does not get preached on very often, but I think it's going to be a helpful starting place for us. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14. There is a futility that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve, and there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say that this too is futile. Wow. The writer of Ecclesiastes says things that, that are very different from the way Christians even talk nowadays, right? Can you imagine a Christian website where they have like a coffee mug with this verse on it? right? Can you picture like, in like, like the gold lettering with the flowers and it says, this too is futile. And then you turn the cup around and it says, the righteous get what the wicked deserve. Like, can you even picture that being a thing? Like, no, we don't even acknowledge this is in the Bible half the time. And yet it's true, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it true that sometimes there are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve? And aren't there times when wicked people get what the actions of the righteous deserve? Yeah, we know this is true. In fact, there may be some of you here that you're not even a Bible believer. Like you go, like, I'm here, I don't believe the Bible, but my friend asked me to come, and so I said, sure. And now, I, I mean, I didn't know that was in the Bible, but I would now say I know that there's at least one Bible verse that I believe, right? Because that's true, right? Life is unfair. It is. We see it. We see it in the area of health. Have you seen this? Where there are some people who they like take vitamins and they work out and they don't have a sedentary lifestyle at all and they're eating like a lot of green things and real healthy stuff. And then you see someone else who hasn't, like they eat like one vegetable a year, okay? And it's a blooming onion from Outback. <laughs> and then the person who's taken all the vitamins and eating all the greens gets cancer. And the person who eats the blooming onion lives to 95. Doesn't that happen sometimes? And we look at it and we go, that's not fair. Or what about with children? Have you ever met like a young married couple and you think to yourself like, man, they would be such awesome parents. And they keep trying to have kids and they can't. And it's been six years and then seven years and then eight years and they can't have children and it bothers them, right? 
And then you hear of some other families and they just keep having children and they're abusing their children. And everybody in the neighborhood knows it or there's a, you know, whatever, whatever it was. They were arrested and then this happened or whatever. You read these stories in the newspaper or online. And there are times where you go like, who is calling the shots here? Why are they, like, they keep getting kids and they're abusing their children and then these people over here, there would be such good parents and you know that, everybody knows that. Why would you with, withhold that from them? Who's deciding how this all turns out? This, this just doesn't seem fair. Or how about with the criminal justice system? Have you ever seen injustice in the criminal justice system? Yeah, haven't there been times where there are people who they've done something wrong and because of some high-powered, high-paid attorney, they get away with it? Does that happen? Yeah. Or someone who's wrongly convicted and then 20 or 30 years after the fact, there's DNA evidence that exonerates them and yay, it's good that they got out, but man, to go to prison for 20 or 30 years for something you didn't do, that's not fair. That's so unjust. Or what about people that are in power that abuse their power? People that are in charge of whatever it is, maybe a corporation or maybe a government, and they're so harsh to the people underneath them. So harsh to the people that have to submit to them and have to put up with them. But not all of them. Some of them they show lenience to. Like the people who are from the right family or they're rich or they're the same race as them. It's not fair. These things happen all the time and they're not fair. And so the question is, how could God tolerate oppression, injustice, conflict, and violence? And some people come to that question and this is their answer. They go, well, maybe, maybe there is no God. Maybe that's the answer. Like maybe the reason why it feels like there's no one up there calling the shots is because there is no one up there calling the shots. Maybe that's a good answer to the question. How could God tolerate oppression and injustice? Maybe there is no God. Does injustice prove that there is no God? Now, the answer is no, it does not. But the reason why it feels like it does is because pretty much every one of us shows up to the like, decision-making table with some unfounded assumptions. I say unfounded because we don't have any really good reason we believe it, but we just, we just do. Almost all of us automatically have some unfounded assumptions, and then we show up to the table to decide, okay, there's oppression and injustice in the world. Could it be there's no God? And this is the unfounded assumption we have. If there were a God, he would do what I would do. Right? That's the thing that we assume. So we look at the world and we go, this is unjust, and this, I can't believe this is not being punished. If I were in charge, that would get punished. And these things over here, if I were in charge, they would get rewarded. Those behaviors are not being rewarded right now. But if I were in charge, they sure would be. And so then we go, well, how could God tolerate oppression and injustice? And we go, well, there must not be one. Because if there were one, he, she, or it would do what I would do if I were in charge. But that's an unfounded assumption. Why would you assume that? You don't do that with other things. And you ever seen a really ugly painting and then thought to yourself, like, that's so ugly, I bet you no one painted it. Right? I mean, have you ever been to like your friends, have you gone to your friend's house in their living room and they got a big painting up and a frame and everything and you're looking at it and you're like, that thing's awful, right? Now you're questioning your friendship with the person <laughs> because there's like the smudge that look like charcoal sort of gray stuff and these white stringy things. And then I don't know, what is that at the bottom? It looks like three bloody cats. Like why in the world would you even put that up in your living room, right? But, but no, so how many of you have been in that situation? Not that exact painting, but how many of you have seen a really ugly painting? Can I see your hands? Seen a really ugly painting? Yes. And here's what, none of us saw the ugly painting and thought that thing is so hideous, I bet there was no painter. We didn't do that. 
What's more, what's more logical? It's more logical to, to, for us to assume, well, there was a painter and he just wasn't good, right? Isn't that what you do? Normally, you just assume the painter is bad. And it seems to me that if we were being logical, we'd at least start there. We'd go, well, there's injustice and oppression in the world. So what if there's a bad God who created an ugly world, right? Couldn't that be? I'm not saying there's a bad God. I do not believe that. But I'm just saying, wouldn't you at least start there and go, we live in a world with injustice and oppression. So of course, there's, of course it came from somewhere, but maybe it's a bad God. And that's why the world looks bad. Maybe there's a bad God that made an ugly world. But there is a problem with the bad God theory. And that is, there's good in the world. Like it's not all bad. So this idea that, well, there must be a bad God that made a bad world, well, the pro- like, that sounds good when you're only focusing on oppression and injustice and violence, but when you look at the world, you have to admit, wait a minute, there are actually things that are very good in this world. Some things that are like exquisitely beautiful. We live in a world with oppression and conflict and violence, and we live in a world with love and kindness and joy and laughter and cute little babies and sunrises and sunsets and rivers and oceans and mountains and streams and romantic love and sex and delicious food. I mean, guacamole exists. That's incredible, isn't it? And there are things that are morally pure that we know exist. I mean, just incredible. That you've seen these before where there's like this raging river and this person's about to be swept away and then someone who doesn't even know that person jumps in and rescues them. Have you seen this on TV or even in your own real life? Where someone risks their own life to rescue a stranger. And you go, that, like ethically, that's beautiful. That's how it ought to be. And so we look at our world and we go, no way, this world's not all bad. So, okay, maybe there's like a medium God, right? Because clearly the world has bad in it and the world has amazingly good in it. And so maybe because there's a mix of good and bad, maybe he's a medium God. Couldn't that be what it is? Well, we're getting closer. But there's a problem with medium God. And the problem with medium God is, and let's go back to our painting for a second. If you looked at the painting and you saw the really gross part that really turned you off, but then you noticed there were parts of it that were not medium, but rather beautiful. Like incredibly good. If you looked and you said, wow, there's, the, there's half of that painting or whatever, two thirds of that painting that come to think of it, it's, it almost looks like a photograph, not a painting. It almost looks like a photograph of heaven. Like it's exquisitely beautiful. And then there's the really ugly part. Now, if you saw that, you wouldn't say, so I bet you a medium painter painted it, would you? No, you'd say, no, actually, you would, there would have had to been a very, very skilled painter who painted it. And then there's the part that I don't understand. I don't know if that artist is just different than me and what his opinions of beauty are or not, or if someone came along and ruined it after he painted it, or if maybe he was, it was unfinished and someone just framed it and put it up anyway. Like, I don't know the explanation, but it looks like actually a very good painter painted something and then at some point went wrong. <laughs> and that's, I think, the world we live in. That's my view. That's the Bible's view that there is a just God who uses injustice for his good purposes. Or another way to put it is this, that there is a good God with sufficient reason for the evil that he tolerates. And I didn't make that up. I mean, the first time I read something that sounds like that was really in a book by a guy named Greg Bonson in my 20s. But I, I don't really think it's unique to him. Like, that's just the Christian position. There is a good God with sufficient reason for the evil that he tolerates. And so one of the things that I wanted to teach you this morning is something that you see all throughout Scripture is that God has a pattern 
of short-term bad, long-term good. And you see it multiple times in Scripture. Short-term bad, suffering, oppression, whatever. Long-term greater good, so good it dwarfs the bad. And so I, wanted to, I want you to know that this is all throughout the Bible. I'll just start with the, the most important story in the whole Bible, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that, at the moment that it was happening, would have had to have been considered short-term bad at the time, right? I mean, that was terrible. He, was, he didn't do anything wrong, and he was being murdered. They put him up on the wood, and they nailed stuff through his hands, and he was bleeding, and they shoved a crown of thorns on his head. And so there he is, most likely naked, in front of a group of people that are all mocking him. And his mother, the woman who gave birth to him, watched him be tortured to death. At, that, at the time it was going on, that had to be considered bad. That was certainly short-term bad. And yet, 2,000 years later, we look back and we say, what about that? Oh, well, that was very good. That was when the world was saved. That's when sin was being paid for. That's our only shot at even being reconciled to God. That was actually good. 2,000 years later, we have a holiday where we celebrate what happened that day, and we actually call it Good Friday. We call it good, the day that he was murdered. And it's not just Jesus that this applies to. There's multiple characters in the Bible that you see, short-term bad, long-term greater good. Another character is Joseph. Not the Joseph that was Jesus' adopted father, but the Joseph probably that that Joseph was named after, the one in the book of Genesis. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that's a really good example of short-term bad, long-term good, isn't it? So let me remind you, if you don't know, and if you do, I'll just kind of tell you this real quick. Joseph was sold into slavery by his siblings. That's got to be bad. I don't care how you look at it. I don't know what family problems you have, but you got to admit that's bad, right? When when the brothers all get together and sell one of them into slavery, that is not good. And he went into serious suffering. Like he gets taken to Egypt, so he's in a different culture that he's not familiar with, a language that he doesn't know. He's a slave for a while, and then it gets even worse from there. He's wrongly imprisoned for something he didn't do, and there's like 13 years of suffering. And then he's promoted to become the prime minister of Egypt, and he's in charge of the food distribution at a time when there's famine in all the other lands around Egypt. So that in such a way that when his family is about to starve to death, they are able to come to him and he is the one who is able to provide enough food for his family to not die of starvation. Which is important that his family not die of starvation because of what happened earlier in the story. The people that, that Joseph's ability to give them food and prevented them from starving to death, those people are Abraham's great-grandchildren. And earlier in the story, God had said to Abraham, you're going to become a great nation and the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And so it was important that his descendants not starve to death. And so God used this situation for the long-term good of preserving those people and all the, all the way to Jesus Christ. And it was so obvious that it was a short-term bad, long-term good that even in the midst of the story, Joseph at one point says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And it's not just Jesus and it's not just Joseph. I mean, it's all over the Bible. You see it in Moses' story and you see it in the story of Jonah and you see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. And I think you see it in the overall story of the Bible. I mean, I believe the story of the Bible is that God is bringing about the best of all possible worlds. And that that world had to have some bad as a precursor for it to be understood and enjoyed for what it is. And if you don't understand that idea of, well, how could it be something, why would bad be necessary for good? There are actually several things in your life that you think are good. Everybody in this room thinks is good but they wouldn't be understandable or even able to exist if bad had never been a thing. Let me give you an example. Courage. Courage couldn't exist if if there's no bad. 
I probably everybody in this room says courage is good. I don't think I've ever met anyone that thinks courage is bad. That, everyone just universally agrees courage is good. When I told that story earlier about um, the guy who was uh, rescuing, risking their own life to help the person out of the river, everyone thought, yeah, that's the right thing to do. Everyone thinks courage is good, but courage couldn't even exist if there were no bad. There'd be nothing to be courageous about. And there are several things like that. I'm going to give you another example. Mercy, compassion, forgiveness. Probably everybody in this room would say forgiveness is good. Forgiveness couldn't even be a thing if there was no such thing as bad. People couldn't be compassionate if there was nothing to be compassionate about. And I suspect that heaven, in a similar way, would not seem like heaven without the earth coming first. And so we see in the scripture short-term bad and then the long-term good. And the place that I want to show this to you and really focus on today is the book of Habakkuk. So if you have your Bible, you can flip over from Ecclesiastes to the book of Habakkuk. That's, what we, we'll be, that's the book we'll be in for the rest of this sermon. And I'm going to try to teach you the whole book. Habakkuk has three chapters. I will not read all three chapters, but I want to read you enough to give you a, kind of the gist of the book of Habakkuk. Let me start with verse 1, and I'll just read through and just explain it as we go. So this is Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This is the beginning. So Habakkuk is a prophet, and at some point he saw something. He saw a vision from God. So he's the prophet, and God gives him some kind of a vision, some kind of a, like a revelation. And so that's, and we would call that the thing that was revealed to him. We call it the book of Habakkuk. Right, so here it is, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And the thing that he saw, the vision that Habakkuk had apparently, was a conversation between him and God. Habakkuk spoke to God in, in this oracle. And so I'm just, let me read to you what Habakkuk said in the vision. Habakkuk says in verse 2, How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Well, that sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? He's saying, God, things are bad. Why aren't you doing anything about it? How long do I have to keep asking you to do something? And how long are you going to keep saying no? Look at verse 3. This is the next verse. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? I mean, isn't that the question? That's the question, right? Why in the world would a good God tolerate wrongdoing? That's... I'm so glad this is in the Bible. We need to, we need to know this. What, what's going on here? And what's weird is, maybe many of you didn't know that the Bible asks this question, and this is from a book that's, I don't know, like 2,500 years old, this part of it. Like, it's so weird to me. Some of us think that we've got to the year 2022, and we now suddenly are coming up with objections about Christianity or God that no one's ever thought of before. You know what I mean? Just the whole universal, everything along just went, oh, whatever they say about God, right? And then suddenly this year we went, oh, wait a minute, there's injustice in the world. How could there be a good God? And we kind of act like, I, I made, it almost feels like I'm the first person to think of this. No, okay? They noticed that a long time ago. This is a really old objection that has been asked and answered. This, this goes back a long time. God, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? But I'm thankful it's in there so that we can know, what do we do? Sometimes you don't even want to ask that question, but apparently you're allowed to. Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. He's complaining about what's happening in his own nation, and he's saying, God, why, why is this injustice happening? Why are you doing nothing about all of the 
oppression and the violence and the injustice that I see in my, in my nation here. And God responds back to Habakkuk in verse 5. You can tell by the way it's worded. God is the one answering back here. And he says, verse 5, Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Habakkuk says, why aren't you doing anything about this? Why do I have to keep looking at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? And, and, and God answers, and I think you're going to see it's an answer that was not the answer Habakkuk was looking for. Although it looks good at first, because he says, oh, let me tell you, something's about to happen that will astound you. So you say, you, you act like I'm not doing anything about it, but God responds, oh, I'm about to do something astounding. And I'm imagining maybe Habakkuk was there going like, is this like good astounding or bad astounding? We'll see. I, I would say short-term bad, long-term good, astounding. Here it is, verse 6. God says to Habakkuk, Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. If you read the rest of the chapter, what you can kind of get from this is Habakkuk says, why aren't you doing anything about the injustice in my nation? And God basically says back, oh, I'm doing something about it. I'm sending the, the, I'm sending the Chaldeans in to invade you. <laughs> to which I think Habakkuk would be going, That's, that wasn't the solution I was looking forward to. I had like about 25 other ideas. That was not any of them. Yeah, no, don't worry. I understand there's a lot of oppression and wickedness going on. Someone's got to do something about it. I'm going to send the Chaldeans in to, to attack you. And so Habakkuk says back, this is verse 12, are you not from eternity, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. So in context, it's got to be the Chaldeans, right? You appointed the Chaldeans to execute judgment on us. Look at the next one. My rock, that's God. You destined them to punish us, right? Who's the them? The Chaldeans. So you can see Habakkuk gets what's going on here. Okay, I get it. We are wrong for what we've done. You're sending the Chaldeans in to punish us. But Habakkuk has a problem with that. He goes, but here's the thing, God. I realize you've got to punish us. But the Chaldeans? Really? Look at what he says. This is the next verse. Verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? I think he's talking about the Chaldeans here. Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? It seems that Habakkuk is saying this. I get that we need to be punished for what we've done wrong. But how could you send in the Chaldeans to teach us the lesson? How could you send the Chaldeans in to punish us? They're worse than we are. Like that's my whole concern is it feels so unjust. And so you're saying, oh, you're going to take care of the injustice by having them attack us. But they're worse than we are. That's unjust. They're more treacherous. They, they, they care about you less than we do. So then God speaks back to Habakkuk again. And if you read through chapter 2, it, it seems to me, especially chapter 2 and the way Habakkuk responds in chapter 3, it seems to me that God basically says to Habakkuk, I am going to punish you. Like you, The Chaldeans are going to come in and they're going to attack you. That's how I'm going to handle this. And then after they do that, I'm going to attack them. And in fact, it seems like God agrees. They are more treacherous than you. I, they're going to attack you and then I'm going to attack them harder then they attack you for what they've done. And you see this in chapter two with all of these woes that God gives to the people who I think they're just describing the, the Chaldeans. Um, Habakkuk 2, it says, woe to him who dishonest, dishonestly makes wealth for his house. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. 
And that's the way Habakkuk takes it, because look at chapter 3. Habakkuk speaks back to God, and this is what he says in verse 12. He says, you, so this is Habakkuk talking to God, you, God, march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. And then look, you come out to save your people, to save your anointed. So you're coming to show justice to the nations, but then you're also going to do something good. You're going to show up and you're going to save your people. Who are the anointed that, that God is coming to save? I think Habakkuk is talking about the Israelites. He's saying, my people. So, so we're doing the wrong thing. Chaldeans are going to attack us. Then you're going to attack them. And in your attacking of them, you're going to rescue us. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. I think that's a reference to the Chaldeans. So once he understands all this, he says this in verse 16. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Why is Habakkuk trembling and quivering? I think it's because he understands short-term bad, long-term good. I think that what you're going to see is he understands long-term good. Yes, you're going to come and rescue us from them. You're going to save your people. But it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think that's why he's trembling and quivering because he realized things are going to get really hard before they get better. And so then he says this, and this is one of the most famous parts of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud... And there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and he enables me to walk on mountain heights. Habakkuk gets to the end of the book and he goes, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And when it gets worse, when it's bad, when there's no figs on the trees and there's no grapes on the vines and there's no sheep in the pen and there's no cattle in the stall, what am I going to do then? Right? What am I going to do when I look at the world and I go, it's bad. They tell me there's a good God, but everything I look at, the blessings of God are not before my eyes. The pen is empty. There's no cattle in the stalls. There's no food. There's no food on the trees. What do I do when, I'm, when, I, when I look out, what I see is bad. And this is what he says. He says, I'm going to praise God anyway. I'm going to praise him in the short term while there's no figs on the trees, while there's no cattle in the stall. I'm going, to, I'm going to worship him and trust in him anyway, knowing that there's coming a day where he's going to make it all right. He's going to come and rescue us. But I'm not going to wait until he rescues us and then worship him. I'm going to worship him even now while things are hard. And what you see in the book of Habakkuk is it fits the pattern I told you is all over Scripture. Short-term bad and long-term greater good. And it even tells us what to do in the meantime because you look at what Habakkuk did as an example. What does Habakkuk do in the meantime while he's in the midst of it does not look good, but one day it will? What does he do? He, he waits. That's what he says, right? I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. He waits and he trusts, and he worships, even before things get better. And to me, that matches the larger story of the Bible. Like, in principle, that's exactly what we're supposed to do 
Like we're, we're not in the exact same situation Habakkuk is in. Is that correct? Right, we're not. We're not worried about the Chaldeans coming and invading us. But we are in a world with oppression and injustice and violence. There are times when we look and we go, it seems like there are no figs on the trees and no cattle in the stalls. It seems like the evidence of God's goodness is not in front of my eyes. So what do I do? And so the, the larger story of the Bible, and if I try to explain how I think this applies to the larger story, if I'm trying to summarize the, the big story of the Bible, I think you, the shortest way you could probably summarize it is in four words. Okay? If you want the longer version, you've got to read the whole book. But if you, want, if you were trying to summarize the whole, like God's activity with humanity into four words, these are the four words that I think you could do. It's probably the shortest way you can summarize the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's a summary of God's interaction with humanity according to the Bible. First of all, creation. God created the world and all of us and everything in it. That's the relationship we have to God. He's the creator and we're his creatures. And then the next thing that happened is the fall. That is we, God's creatures, sinned. We brought sinfulness into the world. We messed up the good creation. And so we ruined our relationship with God. We brought sin into the world. We brought a curse onto the world. That's why there is disaster and terrible things and has been. We brought it in with the fall. We've sinned against a holy God. The next step is redemption, which I would say that's the part of the Bible which starts with the establishment of Israel. Then from Israel comes Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sins, was redeeming us. That is, he was paying a price to buy us back, to purchase us to get us out of slavery, to get us out of like sin's dominion and back with God, that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was taking a punishment on our behalf so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so we could be reconciled with God. So Jesus does that. He redeems his people. He pays the price. He takes on the punishment. He reconciles people to God. He brings about mercy and forgiveness to people so that people can be God's people again, that they can be reunited with God again. And then from that, when Jesus forgives the people of their sins, there now is this group of people that have been forgiven, this group of people that have been reconciled to God, the people who have been redeemed. And so the last couple of like 2,000 years has been this part of the redemption story where God is still to this day redeeming people. He's still redeeming people. And the church is still doing its job of going around and telling the world, you can be reconciled to God the Father through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You can be redeemed. And there's coming a day when that part of the story is over. And God will return, and he will do what is called the, the restoration of all things. There's coming a day that the redemption time is done, and God returns to his world, and he destroys all of his enemies, and he saves his people. Just like in the book of Habakkuk, but just bigger. God will return and destroy his enemies and rescue all of his people. And what are we supposed to do in the meantime? while we're here. And I think the answer is the same thing that Habakkuk did. We wait, and we trust, and we worship. Now, I realize someone could ask, well, why couldn't God get to the restoration part faster? Okay, I mean, why can't, it seems like he's taking a long time. Why couldn't we zip this part through a little quicker? Why does he jump straight to restoration? That's what I would do. And you get to do whatever you want, and guess who else gets to do whatever they want? God does. And I'll tell you, according to 2 Peter, the reason for why, why doesn't God get to the restoration part faster, according to 2 Peter, it's because he's patient. And he's still waiting for people to repent and be redeemed. 
There are still people to this day that are repenting and being redeemed. And he's waiting as long as he wants. But it will not be forever. And I will tell you this, if he had just skipped the redemption part, if you just went, yeah, I don't like all this, this stuff in the meantime, if, why couldn't it just be creation, fall, and then restoration? <laughs> if God had skipped redemption and just did a three-word plot line of the Bible, creation, fall, restoration, that would have been very bad news for all of us in this room. Because the redemption is what makes this restoration even possible, at least in a way that would be good for us. That Jesus Christ died on the cross and redeemed us so there is a people to save. And so that we're not his enemies. I guess what I'm saying is if it was just creation, fall, and skip straight to restoration, you would have God, after the fall, returning to his creation, and there'd be nobody to save. Right? It would just be like, if he's going to show up and destroy his enemies and save his people, it would just be all enemies. Without redemption, he would just show up and everybody would be enemies. Just kill everybody. Done. But no, he redeems and then restores. And so if I'm trying to summarize this whole thing, I guess I'm trying to say this. We can get upset with God for doing things differently than we would do. But that wouldn't be evidence that he's not there. Only that he's different than us. And don't you want God to be different than you? <laughs> I mean, do you really want to worship a God that would make all the same decisions you would make? Would you worship a God that agrees with you on everything? Come on, you might as well worship you. If it's true that you are a created thing and you have a finite amount of knowledge, and if it's true that he knows everything, of course he's going to make different decisions than we do. And so my main point this morning is to say this. There is a good God who is painting something beautiful that for now includes ugly parts. But the story is clear. He's not finished yet. And so in the meantime, we wait and we trust and we worship. And it's the people who do that who will enjoy the finished product. Let's pray. God, I feel like subjects like this one sometimes feel very heavy. And there may be some of us who it feels very heavy because we've never thought through this stuff before. And there may be some of us who we've thought about this a whole lot of times. And it's been nagging at us for quite a while. But I pray the same thing that I prayed at the beginning of this sermon, that you would be our teacher. I hope that I said it right, and I hope, and I especially pray that you would help us to hear it right. I thank you for what you've explained in all sorts of ways through Jesus and Joseph and Habakkuk and whoever else. I don't understand why all the short-term bads are there. I don't, I don't know. Every individual thing, I, I don't know why you do all the things that you do. But I know that you promised that there will be a greater good that will outweigh it all. And so I pray on behalf of anybody in this room who agrees with this, that we say to you, we trust you in the meantime, when there's no figs on the trees and when there's no cattle in the stall, like when we look and we go, things don't seem good right now. We tell you, we're not going to wait until things get better and worship you then. We worship you right now in the short term, trusting in your salvation in the long term. And we love you and we thank you for sending Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.